0: Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. And, friends, Periodic Warning. This podcast is not about summary, nor content, nor entertainment, nor facts. This podcast aims for aporia. That is, we aim to begin in uncertainty and to end in paradox, silence, and doubt. And, if nothing else... These aims, at least, we achieve. Today we are discussing Cantos 13, 14, and 15 of Dante's and Virgil's continuing descent in hell. This turns out to be an especially dense reading, covering many thorny topics such as the difference between suicide, a damnable act, and dying to yourself in order to live in Christ, an act which Dante celebrates. What is Dante's relationship to homosexuality? Clearly he deems it a sin. Yet the homosexuals we meet in hell are among the noblest characters and receive the gentlest treatment of any sinners. What is the relationship between sodomy, usury, and suicide? And between these sins and their highly allegorical punishments? As you can tell, it's another fun-filled episode of the podcast. And now here's Alex with the opening question.
1: All right, so... In Canto 13, Dante and Virgil are among the, uh, the suicides, and uh, Virgil goads Dante into breaking off a twig of this thorn bush, and it turns out it is a soul of someone who committed suicide, and they cry out, you know, why are you breaking me? Why are you tearing my body? So I was marveling at this passage, and the question is basically what does it mean for suicides to be transformed into thorny bushes i was kind of thinking about the relation of what's what dante is describing and what we read before in ovid how ovid kind of describes the metamorphoses of a person into something like a bush a plant a tree but ovid's narrative doesn't always give the the transformed thing a voice but Dante is giving a voice to this uh bush so I thought that was interesting
0: it um, uh yeah happens in Virgil as well right there's a very similar incident where Aeneas breaks a thorn bush or some kind of bush and it's uh I can't remember the kid's name but yeah he's he asks Aeneas why why are you breaking me apart and causing me pain
2: It's when, isn't it when they try to build the new Troy and there are all those plants in the ground that are sort of like bloody Mm -hmm. and they're like the deceased or something like, ow, leave us alone.
0: Yeah, I was like a, specifically the bush that spoke to Aeneas was some, like the prince, somebody's the son of a king who tried to go there to build a city before and was, I can't remember the details, but was transformed into a bush as punishment. Anyway. Um, well let's let's think what, through so this. Can, go ahead what can we can we concisely state what we think the opening question is?
2: Yeah so so what is the poetic justice in having a suicide become a tree a bush? okay Is that about right, Alex? Yes. okay, so let's think through this character starting in line, well, should I just should I just read some of it? Go for it. All right well I'm actually I'm just gonna talk a little more generally and decide where to read so this character we learned from the footnote is pierre delvinia peter of the vine right the footnote sort of suggests that this peter is supposed to be like a parody of saint peter right so pierre says i am the one who holds both keys to frederick's heart and i could turn them locking unlocking so discreetly frederick is an emperor who's also in hell right uh and the gospels Peter gets the keys to the kingdom, right? Christ says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. But this Pierre has the keys to this emperor's heart. He commits suicide, basically, because there's some political intrigue, right? All minds are inflamed against him. Then he says, my mind in scornful temper, hoping by dying to escape from scorn, made me, though just against myself, unjust. By this tree's new sprung root, I give oath. Not once did I break faith with my true Lord, a man so worthy of honor. Twenty years back in the world, let him restore my reputation, which helpless lies beneath the blow that envy dealt it. So we really get the notion that he committed suicide because he cared too much about what other people thought, right? He was, he was canceled or whatever we'd say in modern vernacular, and that led him to take his own life. And then skipping to line 94, Four. When the ferocious body, Pierre explains, when the ferocious soul deserts the body after it has wrenched up its own root, Minos condemns it to the seventh gulch. It falls into the forest in a spot not chosen, but flung by fortune, helter skelter. It fastens like a seed. It spreads into a shoot, then a wild thicket. The harpies feeding on its leaves get pain into that pain a mouth. We will come to claim our cast off bodies like the others, but it would not be just. If we again put on the flesh, we robbed from our own souls. We here we shall here drag it. And in this dismal wood, our bodies will be hung, each one upon the thorn bush of its painful side. And so, I mean, at a basic level, right, we can we can say they don't have bodies in the afterlife because they treated their bodies poorly. Right. That's the poetic justice of you cannot be embodied, um, but you must be in a tree. What's interesting about that, right, is uh, bodies hung in tree is a sort of, and even the thorn bush, right, Christ wears a, a crown of thorns, and bodies being hung in trees is the prophecy about Christ. And so there's this sort of weird, counterintuitive, maybe even, resonance that somehow there seems to be Christ-like imagery used to describe these people, right, which seems sort of shocking at first.
1: Yeah, it's like, uh, it's a mimesis. They they have to symbolize the event, uh, the redeeming event, the redeeming sacrifice. The act, their sin, suicide, it, it sort of profanes existence, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christ died that they might live, so they chose to die, and now they have to sort of symbolize christ's sacrifice but being a, a thorn bush on which their own cast off body hangs eventually
2: mm-hmm. well and there's a couple yeah that's good alex and there's a couple things that are strange to think about here one is christ is really clear in the gospels right no one takes my life i willingly lay it down right and then and and the other thing so in some sense and i i say this without any attempt to be sort of Profane or heretical, but in some sense, right? Jesus goes on a suicide mission to Jerusalem. He knows he shouldn't go back there. He knows what's going to happen. He does it anyway, but he does it for a larger cause, right? And he does it, you know, knowing that he'll be resurrected. Or the relationship Alex is describing is, I think, think about how we talked about community last week. So
0: we think that that the sacrifice of Christ is like it generates a community, right? Yeah, and the suicide follows being expelled from the community
1: uh-huh. and,
0: and it takes like, you out of a community and right takes, takes you out of the community sounds like a, hmm. um literally inverse as well as symbolically inverse yeah that's good this guy this this uh, um this character in particular it seems like would be very easy to leave him feeling like empathy that he has some dignity that we should feel empathy for him he seems to have he has accepted the justice of his punishment in some way but he also like defends his honor very with a great with a great rhetorical skill and i'm not given any reason in the text that i see to think that he's lying i guess except that he's in hell (laughs) but but it's like he's not in hell for betraying frederick right he's in hell for being a suicide because betrayal is a different sin and is in a different circle Mm -hmm. uh i just feel like often the characters that rise up to defend themselves they, they end up looking kind of silly but he i don't think you're supposed to think of him i don't think you're supposed to think of him as a character with dignity mm-hmm. or has a, a genuine case to plead because he's in hell but it would be easy to leave his speech with those those feelings i think
2: well can i continue on the the peter comparison a little bit Oh yeah, Maybe. no 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 this is good well i want to i want to i actually think what you're saying is helpful to think about that because Peter is less loyal to Christ than Pierre is to the emperor, right? Because Peter does deny Christ, right? And then, and then right, Peter, at the end of the Gospel of John, right, three times Jesus asks, do you love me, right, after the famous betrayal scene where he denies knowing him, right? But he didn't deny Frederick. But uh, the issue is, in a sense, right, that his loyalty was to something too small. And you could even say something idolatrous. And then there's this interesting description of the suicides generally. It falls into the forest in a spot not chosen, but flung by fortune, helter-skelter, it fastens like a seed, right? So when you commit suicide, you lose all agency. And then there's the the prophecy of Christ, right? So right after Christ says, feed my sheep, feed feed my sheep, he says to Peter, this is John. Give me a second. Um, This is John 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so there's like another parallel that like, Peter is disloyal to Christ. He's restored. And then Christ says, because of this, you're going to lose all agency, right? You're going to be crucified upside down or whatever it is, Right the suicide who takes his own body i'm getting somewhere with this i promise <laughs> the suicide who takes his own body right is also giving up their agency but they're giving it up for a different reason but i think in some way and this is what i'm this is what i'm trying to get at in some inchoate way and i apologize for talking so much but in some way right the 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 question of suicide goes to the heart of what it means to be a christian right because jesus says if you would follow if you would follow me take up your cross and follow me Anyone who seeks to save his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it, right? Paul says, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So in some sort of like metaphysical sense, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to willingly die to yourself, right? Metaphorically, metaphysically, however you want to understand that, right? And so in some way, the suicide is very close to that logic, but it's monstrous. It's a monstrous perversion of like the essence of what it means to be a Christian, because you're, you're taking your life, but you're taking it for too small a purpose, or you're taking it out of not virtue, but vice or something like that. And I think that's why it's such a big deal. And I think that's why the parallel between Peter and Pierre is, I think, I see it woven all throughout here. In that way, Pierre is like an anti-Christian in a really deep, profound sense.
3: I think that's especially enforced via Judas and his suicide. And there was a weird question I had about this, which is that like, it seems that Judas is here in some way too. And it seems like on some level also Judas pervades all of hell, but especially the suicide, it feels like Judas is present for since all of these suicides will take on the appearance of the arch or the arch of suicide judas after they get their bodies back because right now they're just these torture trees oh that's right during the second
2: hung himself from a tree
3: right during the second coming they'll all get their bodies back in a perverse way which was that they'll be hanging their bodies will be hanging and the their thorns, their tree will lash their bodies forever. And so they all become Judas-like in form at the second coming, even though Judas's true sin isn't even suicide. I thought mm-hmm. that, was, that was, I don't, I don't couldn't play with that too far, but that's just, yeah.
1: Hmm.
2: That's good. So my suggestion was that the problem with suicide is they give up their life, but they give it up for the wrong reason or to the wrong thing in brief. After all that talking, I think that's kind of right. But what would does that seem like the right way or is there a more precise way to articulate what I'm getting at here?
3: I think, I think it's got to be right. So Frederick's in hell for heresy. And Pierre has said, I gave even my life up to Frederick, right? When Frederick renounced him, he had nothing left to live for. So he threw his life away. Now, of course, the difference between God and Frederick is the king god never renounces a true christian but for pierre the logic is is perfect is a perfect image of that right like i a devote themselves to like king country and that's like a, another like you know we talk about these like noble ones in hell i think pierre is definitely one of those I- images and then we'll talk about um the guy who lies in the the pit he's a blasphemer right later But yeah, so he's he's noble because he devotes himself wholly to a cause. Uh, And we saw that with um, not Francesca Ferrara. Was it Ferrara? Who's the heretic? Ferranata. Ferranata, right. He's devoted wholly to a cause and therefore withstands hell more. Here, it's pretty clear that Pierre is in pain. So he doesn't have that like stoic magnanimity or something. But he has, he retains noble speech and and like praise. The problem is that doesn't, I can't yeah. rescue you from hell.
0: Right. That's something that I was thinking about. Like rhetoric survives, like high rhetoric survives in hell. You know, it's kind of an interesting feature. There's a very, uh, it's almost like Augustinian disdain towards rhetorical skill mm-hmm. with relationship to these. To these characters in hell, but which I mean, you see characters deploying what appear to be noble sentiments, but are actually like selfishness or pride or something, some sort of sinful motivation that, that's then transformed through rhetorical skill to something that sounds more high-minded.
2: And isn't isn't that Adam? I mean, isn't that Augustine's exact problem with rhetoric? Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's that why me. it would be pervasive in hell, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm trying to spell out the idea of it being Augustinian. I was gonna say, oh yeah, the, it's interesting you brought up the um, death in Christ thing. It's like the. I'm thinking how to phrase this. So the, when I was trying to think about like how <laughs> actually I was trying to think about how Paul would want to talk about this as like a kind of, as a kind of disdain for the earth or like a hatred of the body or hatred of life or something like. The, All the podcast is,
2: member, not the apostle.
0: Go on, oh yeah, sorry, <laughs> Mr. Jacobs, our esteemed, our esteemed, our esteemed peer. <laughs> but uh, so, so this is an example of the ideas you're supposed to die to yourself, but you understand that as a dying into like a higher life, which is you know beyond the physical realm. And if you are too focused on the physical realm, then instead of it being a celebration of life, it's actually a celebration of death because you end up misplacing your misplacing your allegiance or misplacing your worship. And that leads you to that leads you to make your being dependent on a finite source, I guess I would say. Right. And therefore that you cede control to a source like that Greg was saying, like the king who can reject you or the public who can reject you or whatever or a lover who can reject you and that's just a misunderstanding of your of the nature of worship or something i was trying to imagine how, how paul would uh, respond to that but that's <laughs> anyway i think yeah. that's that's part of the image that we're seeing with the, the body the desiccated like unsold body hanging on the thorn bush mm-hmm. and then the soul is like within the dried husk of vegetation that's tormenting the lifeless body
2: there's a, there's a moment in the gospels when uh jesus says to i think some unnamed potential disciple come follow me and then and he says let me bury my father and then jesus's response is let the dead bury their own dead right and the implication of that is like yeah all of this stuff politics all this stuff you care about is is a realm of death and like you can't stay behind in it And so to Pierre, I mean, in Pierre Delvinia's version of this is, right, caring too much about the political intrigue and not seeing that that it was finite, right, that it was ephemeral, however you want to say it. But what's interesting is that he's a man who sought honor, right, in a way, that's what's at stake here, right, his own honor, when he lost all honor, he decided to take his own life. And uh right honors this interesting question for dante and how to deal with it maybe it's simpler with pierre delvinia because he lives in christendom and and could have known better whereas aristotle etc achilles so on and so forth all those people we see in canto four didn't know better it was kind of the highest thing available to them
3: we're really gonna have to talk about cato too when we get there um because it, it that'll really throw a wrench.
2: You're talking. You're talking about Cato as the gatekeeper to Purgatory. Yeah, uh, yeah. And
3: therefore, you know, non-exceptional,
2: saved pagan.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, he can't yeah. enter Purgatory, but he's as close as you can get. Yeah, even closer the to Virgil. Yeah. yeah.
3: Even though he's a suicide, um, which I think is tricky. I mean, like, there's a there's a bunch of ish, like things to discuss there. But um, another thing I wanted to ask about is it seems like we get one of the most, what I found to be interesting accounts of the materialism of the soul in this description. So it's when Pierre talks about how they, you know, Dante's like, well, how'd you become a tree? Uh, And he says, so this is around line 97 or a little earlier. I'm going to read from 94 when the ferocious soul and I take it there is, what's that? Okay. Yeah. It's pretty similar Italian. So, you know, uh, a rageful soul or deserts the body after has wrenched up its own roots so first off already Dante or Pierre establishes that a suicided soul is already like a tree and that you've ripped up your own roots and so uh-huh. there's like a metaphorical transformation that already begins so you rip up your own roots you know metaphorically um Minos condemns it to the seventh gulch it falls into the forest, into a spot, not chosen, but flung by fortune, helter-skelter. Uh, it fastens like a seed. So the soul has material enough to fasten itself to some spot, and it spreads into a shoot, then a wild thicket. The harpies... Can female- I can I pause you for a second, Greg?
2: Yes. Um, right. We just read De Anima by Aristotle, and he's really... Inf- well... The soul can move. Well, there's a real question about like how the soul can move, right? But this soul, right, it's flung and it can't choose a spot, at least in part. I think the soul still has desires. I think Pierre's speech shows that it still has desires, right? But it can't move because it lacks the vehicle by which to move, which is the body.
0: Longfellow's line right there, by the way, is they're flung by fortune like a grain of spilt. It germinates,
3: which is pretty good it's very that's very close spell to the Germany. very close to the italian um but um i don't know i'm not sure about that Elijah, because it grows It's the soul has the property of growth in in death um and then we've seen the other souls detached from their bodies run around
2: but growth is not movement
3: to aristotle it is it wasn't aristotle it was it was one of the four
2: yeah man. yeah, yeah. But if I, if a seed grows, right, it's, there's something I have to think could go on. Carry on. Well,
3: So I guess what I was struck by this is it's almost like an Epicurean account, but the difference is that an Epicurus, he's emphatic, the soul dies when the body is dissolved. Whereas here, it seems like the soul separated from the body lands and can do its own thing. Um, So it spreads like a shoot, then a wild thicket, the harpies feeding on its leaves, give pain, into that pain and mouth, so you can definitely feel pain without your body, right? We will come to claim our cast-off bodies like the others, um, but it would not be just if we again put on the flesh we robbed from our own souls. Here we shall drag it and in this dismal wood. Our bodies will be hung, each one upon the thorn bush of its painful shade. So there's this like divided pain too—the pain that the tree feels as the harpies devour its leaves. And then the pain, the body feels that the thorns of the soul itself inflict upon the body. I just, I, you know, I don't know what, what that is, but it's an incredibly striking to me as a corporeal account of, of a soul or material account of a soul, even though it's certainly immortal.
2: What does he mean when he says on 102, the harp 101 to 102, the harpies feeding on its leaves give pain into that pain of mouth? What does it mean to give a mouth to the pain of the soul? The Latin is fenestra, which I think probably has something to do with window, right? To defenestrate, to throw somebody out of a window. To pain of mouth.
0: So you don't think it's the meaning is that the kind of like pain is the ever present condition of hell and... It's just localized in the mouth of the harpies in this case
1: i i thought it Uh, had some sort of relation to there was like a murmuring that dante heard and then when he breaks the bush the bush really cries out and affirms that it that it's these thorn Mm -hmm. bushes that make the sound so i don't know if the harpies disturbing the bushes it's just meant you know they rip these leaves and that causes pain for the soul, and then the souls cry out in pain. Because I suppose otherwise, if they were in this if they became a thicket and they resided here in the gulch and they were undisturbed, they wouldn't have any pain to cry about. So it's like a, so
2: you're reading it, Alex is like give voice to that pain or something.
1: That somehow in their in their hell there must be like this further. Torment as they w- await this final pilgrimage. You know, at the, after the rapture, they have to reenact in their own way the uh, crucifixion by dragging their corpses back down to hell and hang them on their own thicket. So in the meantime, they they get their branches ripped by harpies and have to cry out in pain. Mm-hmm. Is how I'm reading that.
2: So reading just thirty-one to thirty-three. Uh-huh. Okay, go, so go it's ahead, like Adam. The harpies feed
0: on the leaves, and when they bite the the bush, they create pain, and they create they create the mouth by which the bush cries out in pain. So it's like the harpies are. So it says. So Longfellow says it springs a sapling and a forest tree. The harpies feeding men upon its leaves do pain create, and for that pain, an outlet. Uh-huh. It's like the, every time the harpies cause them pain by feeding on them. They also create a new outlet for them to cry out in pain.
3: So it's like a new hole that yeah. their oh. screams will emerge from.
2: Yeah, ah, that's great. That's right. That's
3: great because that's got to be
2: what it is. Let's jam on this. Right when
1: he okay, let's go back to when he breaks jam. the twig. That's Thirty-one to thirty-three. Thirty-one. Then I stretched out my hand and plucked a twig from a tall thorn bush and its stem, the stem of the twig, cried out, why do you break me? And it ran dark with blood. It cried again. Why do you tear me? It's like it's interesting because
0: it's like there are all these creatures in hell that are crying out all the time, but no one is there to care or interpret them, their sounds, or pay attention. It's like Dante provides them with a foil for... To like make their sound have meaning again or something otherwise it's just kind of a meaningless roar of suffering
2: mm-hmm. right so if we imagine a uh there's so much interesting here this is such a bizarre way of thinking about it so if we imagine a soul coterminous with the bush that burst grows up nothing has yet broken it it mm-hmm. maybe doesn't maybe can't speak yet Right. And then a harpy or a human in Dante's case comes up and breaks it. And then. That the pain that is contained within the bush can now spill out into the world. And if we imagine the break. Right. So the part that's broken off is no longer soul. Right. I think. But the part that uh, Hmm. the part of the bush that's the central part. Right. Has soul. And the soul sort of spills out through all the holes inflicted, all the harms which create holes inflicted uh-huh. by others. Well,
0: I was thinking, like, part of the pain is that they want to communicate their pain, right? Uh huh. And there's no one to hear.
2: Yeah, that's certainly relevant to modern ways of thinking about suicide, right? Uh, yeah, that's good.
0: That's right. I was thinking more like God is the... So, like, the presence of God is what makes... Words meaningful or something, or like gives words weight, mm-hmm. and once that's removed, it's just a howl like kind of a meaningless howl. And somehow, I guess, thinking of the giants later on is color because I, I love that thing with the giants that can only bellow nonsense phrase words, but that'll come later. But, um, yeah, somehow, like, there's because Dante's voyage through hell is ordained by God. I don't know, he's like this little <laughs> It's like this little code of meaning around him when he passes through. It's like all of a sudden there's beautiful rhetoric floor floods hell briefly and then Mm -hmm. dissipates again.
1: I hadn't uh, thought about that before. I want to sort of like say how interesting that thought is, Mr. Keck. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I didn't think about Dante encountering these people and that, you know, this is like their only, the only opportunity for these shades to, make a meaningful speech that can be remembered by anyone mm-hmm. since dante's a visitor right so Vir-
2: virgil says to pierre this is line 51 or 52 now tell him who you were so that by way of recompense he may revive your fame up in the world where he's permitted to return right so one reason and well and just backing up a little bit i mean that's a really interesting, provocative idea. It's almost like parallel to the idea in modern physics that the observer changes the thing observed, right? And and I think this has got to be true in some sense. Dante's presence in hell sort of makes it appear in a certain way, that it wouldn't appear otherwise. That's basically your point, right? Yeah, yeah. Or kind of what you're thinking towards?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, for certainly, yeah. I was the kind of thinking like part of the pain of... Being in hell is just like the, is like loneliness, right? Mm-hmm. There's yeah. kind of a, a final loneliness in hell and that is ex- probably expressed in like the inability to communicate your suffering and your loneliness. It's one of the forms of suffering, one of the forms of punishment.
2: When Virgil's speech here, he may revive your fame up in the world by way of recompense, right? In some ways that's precisely Pierre's torment, right? That he was filled with scorn in the world. And it's strange. I mean, it's could be is Virgil is Virgil taunting him? Is Virgil Mm -hmm. doing a good deed? Does Virgil totally misread the situation? Because to in this flying pagan categories or something. Yeah. When I'm thinking about uh not Cavalcanti, but the guy Farinata, right? In some ways, the possibility of restoring his earthly honor would actually increase, I think, Pierre's torment. You see what I'm saying? Uh like to increase the desire for that is to is in some way to increase his torment. And at least at the very least Virgil's acting as an agent of God in that, right. In perfect justice, Virgil's Virgil is going with the grain of Pierre's sin in a way that is, yeah, is just right. Mm -hmm. In some way. The other thing I wanted to say quickly, right. We need to think about the beautiful rhetoric and the sort of irony. Well, So the next thing after he says, why do you break me? When it ran dark with blood, it cried again. Why do you tear me? Are you completely without pity? This, in a certain sense, this is nonsense, right? In the sense that Pierre seems to totally not identify the irony here that he's in hell for harming himself. And then when somebody else harms him, he goes, don't you have any pity for me? And like the problem with Pierre is that he didn't have pity for himself. Right. And so in some sense, I mean, I wouldn't push this too far, but in some sense, like the certain the speeches of Francesca and Farinata and Pierre, in one sense, they're beautiful rhetoric. In another sense, they're kind of complete nonsense. Right. They're they're babbling that's distorted by lack of self-knowledge or sin or something. Such that they're kind of all a little bit ridiculous or at least ironic.
1: I think that's right. <laughs> they make their case, but they they don't really have it's not like the tortured souls seem to learn something from their fate. I mean, I guess the best example was that one fellow who's standing in his coffin, the the taller one, the tyrant. Yeah. He he's still the same in his torment and Maybe that's that's true again of this shade, Pierre. Yeah, in his well, uh, bush. Well, at a
2: fundamental level, hell is not about learning, right? Learning doesn't become relevant until yeah. we get to purgatory.
1: I guess right. the main thing uh, that the only the only revelation is that I was wrong, <laughs> and here's mm-hmm. my sin. And apparently, in the judgment, he learns about what the what the final part of the judgment uh, the final part of the punishment will be that after the rapture you will reclaim you'll reclaim your corpse and drag it back down to hell and hang it on your thorny bush where your your shade will retreat within the bush again do you think you
2: uh, alex or anyone do you think he fully understands that he's wrong or is there some error in his understanding greg you were going to say something also we could go with your inquiry
3: no so this actually hits upon it so it's so he describes what he's going to do in the second coming right here we shall drag it and in this dismal wood our bodies will be hung each one upon the thorn bush of its and then the italian sua its own you know painful molesta shade, oh. um, and that's his last word is molesta mm-hmm. so he is talking and he switches from first person to third person um which to me does indicate some cognitive dissonance at the same time the lat and that's the last word you know this beautiful poetic speaker the last word he gets is molesta like the the torture yeah that's and that's and then they're interrupted by the the suicides and all but reality the ones who wasted everything until they were literally about to die right mm-hmm. um i thought that was I mean, yeah i was gonna oh shoot what was it
2: can i spin out something greg so part of their punishment so so before right the soul is rooted in the body right and now as punishment the soul the shade becomes a, a bush right and then it becomes the support for the body but that's perverse that's not the way it's supposed to be it's upside down right imagine if right imagine if you took my 200 pounds right of of flesh and bone and all of that and put it on top of a bush what would happen Well, i would crush that bush right i would cause a lot of pain to that bush if that bush were sentient right so in some way part of their punishment in hell is that their soul becomes their soul holds up their corpse Right, rather than their body sustaining their soul. It's an inversion in that way.
3: Yeah, and if I don't want to go down this too far, but if the soul is in some way material, then the soul's materiality is larger and more substantial than the body's, if it can support the body's weight. And that's maybe not like realizable on earth, but somehow the soul's greater significance it, it manifests in hell. But the but the but the division is felt,
2: right? So the soul in this in this ring, the soul is embodied in a tree, right? And then the body literally becomes dead weight upon the soul, just hanging it down, right? Because if if Dante coming up and breaking a twig causes enough pain for Pierre to cry out, right? How much pain is a is a corpse, right? A mass of dead flesh going to cause to a tree hanging on it forever?
3: Yeah. And the, but then, what I'm and, saying. Yeah. I think that's tr- definitely true. But then the, the other thing too, is the body's itself in pain by the, by the tree. Right. So there's this weird thing where the tree is pained by the body and the pressure and the weight that it holds forever. The harpies ripping its leaves off, giving it more mouths to cry out in suffering, but the body itself that was abandoned by the souls remains in pain and the thorns of that bush rip the body forever and that's what he's left with it's the pain of his body is his last word
2: mm-hmm.
3: not his own not the pain of his soul and it's this you know i think all these absurdities arise from the fact that a suicide does divide soul from body in ways that right suicide is a her- is in some ways it's a heresy that the soul and body are divisible uh whereas everyone else seems to be well aware that This division of soul and body is merely temporary.
2: I can escape scorn by separating my soul from my body, Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, as you pointed out earlier, is a very close perversion of Christianity.
2: Uh huh. What do you make? I'd be interested in your take on the physicalism of these lines, Greg. So, starting in forty, as from a green log burning at one end that blisters and hisses at the other with a rush of sap and air. So from the blo- broken splinter oozed blood and words together. And I let drop the twig and stood like one afraid. I think that's fascinating. The blood and words are like intermixed, maybe not even separable.
3: Uh, I think that's interesting. I think reading that too implies that the twig is the one talking. No, but it says, in it's 33 and its stem cried out. Right. But that could be the twem- the stem of the twig that he's splits off or the original stem. Mm. I mean, the Italian is trunco which sounds a little trunk. bit like trunk I yeah, bet it it might is, have yeah. greater connotation, but they but don't what's a stake it. in that for you? Well, because he so he drops the twig in fear, which to me indicates that something horrible happens, not just on the tree but also on the twig. Uh, and the I think that points to like now there's this like almost infinite divisibility problem. Disintegr- like get,
2: disintegration of the soul. Yeah.
3: yeah. It's just, the soul is just further, further cut up. more orifices, more pain, more that twig is going to be trampled now that it's in the forest and it's more pain. Mm-hmm. So this, the soul is u- u- unified, but, but endlessly discontinuous and divisible into more units of suffering and pain. Alex, have we
2: sufficiently addressed your question? Is there anything else that? Uh,
1: there's probably another episode worth mention. There's a second. There's a second encounter, right? That has uh, at the very end of the chapter. I guess it's at the beginning of Canto fourteen. Urged by the love I bore my place of birth, I gathered up the scattered leaves and gave them back to him, who had by this time spent his breath. The bush asks for the leaves back. Dante gives the leaves back. There's this moment of the bush caring about its hell. It's scattered sort of parts, flesh. yeah. Right? Where where the reason it's there is it it was completely careless with its body mm-hmm. on earth. So now it has this sort of psychological. Uh, fixation on its bushy body it's weird hellish corporeality as a bush
2: yeah yeah so well that's kind of i mean it's sort of somewhat parallel to pierre being outraged that dante would harm him right that's again the sort of The idea that the people in hell, and that's kind of what I was getting at a few minutes ago when I was asking in response to your question, or something you were saying, Alex, that like, in some sense, they know the bad they did, but in another, they don't, right? Like, they do on some surface level, but in some deep level, they don't understand it, and that's why they're in hell. Francesca, Farinata, Pierre, all of these characters, we read between the lines and we see that they are, let's say, deeply maladjusted. Right. That whatever affects sin wrought on their psychology, it persists beyond. What's somewhat ironic about this, the suicides is that the maladjustment expresses itself perhaps in a in a delicacy about the self. But I mean, even if we think about Pierre, right, Pierre does not and nobody has up to this point. Pierre does not ask, can you help me get out of hell? He does not quite express remorse, but he really says, well, if you could go up and defend my reputation, that would be great, right? It's such a perverse concern to have that if he really understood why he was there, right? Then, then he would recognize that still wanting that, that wanting that is a foolish thing at best, mm-hmm. right? The fact that he doesn't recognize that, the fact that he's still fixated on his reputation, or that Francesca is still fixated on her love, or that Farinata is still fixated on his city, right? All of that is persisting evidence that whatever, whatever, I mean, there's a dual punishment, right? There's the punishment of the physical torment in whatever sense it's physical, right? But there's also the punishment of the psyche that's been deformed by sin. And both of those punishments, I mean, this is very much, right? I think Dante is very much a virtue ethicist, right and what is the base idea of virtue ethics practice virtue become virtuous practice vice become vicious right and to be a vicious person is in and of itself a punishment and that's basically like what sartre is trying to show in no exit right to be a vicious person if you have four vicious people in a room you have sufficient punishment for eternity hell is other people
1: yes yes I think
3: that's true with the with the emphasis, though, less on, I mean, character is part of it, but, it, but it's like that the punishment is deprivation, specifically, and that the highest mode of hell isn't pain, but deprivation that's felt most, and that pain is another means to deprivation. And what's deprived is obviously the presence of God, but... Because otherwise, when the moments between pain, there would be enough to you know in some ways they'd be out of hell almost like that like it really has to be to always be in hell means to be always lacking it if that makes sense
2: mm-hmm. Well, so there's the sort of meta level of the biggest privation is lacking the presence of God. And then if we look at Pierre, he's also, there's a privation of the body with Francesca, there's a privation of, of agency, right? Just as they were driven by their emotions that are like the wind. Now they're just whipped around by the wind. They can't go where they'd like. Uh, Farinata, I think would be a little trickier to articulate, but there's a there's a sort of It's his city.
3: He's deprived of his city and his family. Yeah,
2: that's right, that's right.
3: The thing he most lived for, he's cut off from forever, right? He sits in a Mm. tomb, which is uh, as if it's a throne. Um, Farinata, too, in some ways, or not Farinata, Francesca in some ways is deprived of her lover, too. Yeah. Right? She's deprived of the, the thing she most wants of her lover, which is his body. I really also want to talk. But about let me program. just say
2: one one thing, and then and you can transition us. There's a place where I think it's in the Great Divorce where C.S. Lewis says there are two two types of people: people who say to God, "Thy will be done," and then people who say, "My will be done," and God honors both, right? And so in some way, with Pierre, it's clearest. It's like in some way, right? The reason they're in hell is because. Their vice on earth is taken to its logical conclusion. They got precisely what they wanted. And it turns out that precisely what they wanted, right, their own will, their own will being done, precisely what they wanted is a torment when taken to its logical conclusion, right? To be whipped around this way and that forever is the logical conclusion of living according to your passions. To commit suicide is to be deprived of all bodily agency, so on and so forth. Right. And I think, I mean, that's just another way of trying to articulate what's going on with this book vis-a-vis the question of, of the, you know, the architect made hell just, right? The divine architect made it just. And how does that work? Great. Move us forward or if yeah. anyone wants to respond.
3: Well, I, I think the next two, I mean, this, the, this is a really dense reading in some ways, but I think the next two are also so interesting. Um, so we get the description of the, um, I guess, the sands where fires rain down above and then sputter in the sand. So both your your feet and your head are struck by these fires. And I have questions about how that does justice to the blasphemers and the homosexuals. And who's the third one's in there? The It's the it's God nature and so it's the homosexuals, the usurers and the um, blasphemers who are all together. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, was, I had questions about the, the structure of that d- divine punishment. And then also about, you know, Capaneus, uh, who's quite an interesting character. And then I th- think, I feel like the most gentle treatment of anyone in hell we've received so far being um, his old friend and guide. Oh, Bermetto. yeah. That was
0: really interesting. The, um, mm-hmm. His mentor. So I it's guess we're I guess it's implied that he's in hell because he was homosexual. So. Yeah.
3: yeah, it seems some people reject that. Apparently, one of you get footnotes about it. But it seems quite clear that this is his mm-hmm. crime. Yeah. I,
2: th- I think, Greg, to speak to your first question, I mean, my understanding was in one of the major prophets, Jeremiah or Isaiah or something, a prophecy against sodom and gomorrah and it doesn't say anything about homosexuality it says you were unjust in basically financial dealings you treated your workers poorly and i'd have to look that up my understanding is the fire raining down represents sodom and gomorrah which would account for two of the three at least quite easily right sodom gomorrah is a place of economic injustice and obviously as a place of sodomy and that's the sort of Maybe that's maybe we'd have to work out the justice or the logic of that, but I think the allusion is clearly to Sodom and
3: Gomorrah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the 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 fire from the sky to and from the earth below holds that kind of metaphysical violence, right? That these people have revolted against the order of the way things actually are. Um, but I have a second question of that: Why is or what separates? heresy from blasphemy um, such that the heretics imitate the tomb itself. And I feel like blasphemy is is something like a rejection of God itself, whereas heresy is merely a rejection of one of the tenets that the true religion espouses, right? So it's, it's not that a heretic rejects God, a heretic just rejects that the soul is immortal, and therefore God is, God's wrong about that or something, but the blasphemous attempt to go out and actually harm God himself by cursing it is as far as I could get.
0: And Brunetto is pretty remarkable. He really, he like bows his head in reverence, you know, I mean, sorry, the pilgrim, Dante the pilgrim bows his head in reverence to the shade of Brunetto who's in hell. I think he's only previously
2: only bound to the, uh, the angel that
0: moves them into the city.
2: He doesn't, he doesn't, I don't think he doubt, he bows to the noble pagans. If I remember right. No, I don't think so. What Dante says to him, 85. You taught me how man makes himself immortal. How much gratitude I owe for that. My tongue while I still live, must give report. Um, And it has something to do with this poem that he read. brunettos right but that's even that statement you taught me how man makes himself immortal i mean it seems much more pagan than christian right it seems like the end of ovid seems like what Arendt talks about in terms of action and the human condition Um, i mean even the phrase man making himself immortal i guess you could think of it as like theosis in the in the uh, eastern orthodox tradition but it doesn't seem very christian generally Right, but yeah. something something to do about poetry and how it works and what it does, which means like Brunetto and Virgil are probably the best points of comparison here. And he doesn't say that about Virgil.
3: And I think that's certainly true. So I think part of it is, um, I kind of found out really helpful on this. They talked about how their, their thinking was something along the lines of, well, Dante accomplishes his Christianity most by means of poetry. And so becoming immortal through poetry is also becoming immortal in the truest sense for Dante, because he has that alignment. Um, His Christianity is his poetry. His fame is going to be his Christianity in a way that it's not theologically true for all the other Christians. So I think that's pretty crucial. I think the other thing too, is that Virgil can't, Virgil's his guide, but he didn't teach him poetry in the same way because Virgil's doesn't write in vulgar Italian, right? And and it's there's something about the dress of the poem in Italian poetry that makes this hinge for Dante, and, and it makes Brunetto such a crucial figure.
0: It's tempting to really just take it at face value, right? And think that here is a man that Dante genuinely admired and and was impressed by, who was nevertheless was nevertheless a sinner <laughs> and was unable to overcome his his sin. I guess and so you just see that um, that kind of ambivalence reflected in the. I mean, Greg's certainly right that it's he's, he's by far away treated treated the most tenderly of any of anyone we have encountered so far. I think
2: there's a sort of in res- I mean, in response to your thinking, Adam, there's a sort of question about how ruthless Dante is in his application of what he understands to be the Christian logic, right? Because I could read this mm-hmm. moment and go, well, yeah, he's still a pilgrim, he's still a sinner, and so he still has, and remembering that Dante is a medieval, right? Mm-hmm. So I could read this and go, okay, Dante the poet wants to see how Dante the pilgrim is still a sinner, because he's he's treating his teacher with kit gloves right because because he has some personal connection to him and in that sense he's misaligned with god right his sense of justice is deficient relative to gods and when don if dante were perfect right if dante were fully what he ought to be fully virtuous he would walk through hell and never feel pity and go that's right that's right that's right that's right that's right. Mm-hmm. right so that's version one where Don, where dante is like rigor in like a thomistic in a thomistic way and by that i mean with like a sort of thomistic rigor and relentlessness is just in a literary way sort of applying these theological convictions which i think he truly held right Mm -hmm. in this really fastidious ruthless way the other way of reading it which because you were sort of talking about reading it at face value the other way of reading it is dante has the theological convictions i'm talking about but he's really Trying to portray their complexity and work out their complexity for himself. In other words, how can I both love this man and he is a sinner? And I think the question is something about again the distance between Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet, and what we think Dante is trying to do in this poem as a whole. And I think both readings are supportable, actually. Yeah. Does that make any sense at all?
0: Yeah, sure. Because I mean, we do have the you know the example from I think it what's Canto 6, where he, he shoves the one his the political enemy, enemy. Yeah. from Florence back into the boiling blood and says, you know, I'd love to see this this man torn apart over and over again. And Virgil congratulates him on, on his uh sturdiness of character. So it's not like he's in it's like Dante the Pilgrim is incapable of that, of feeling that kind of way towards these condemned souls. It's hard for me to imagine that if there wasn't some kind of empathy intended you would get these precise little portraits like this you know i mean you could i understand theologically why the self is still intact in hell but i do think you could imagine uh much less um a hell that is peopled with much less you know fully realized people you know there even are uh, the uh excessively greedy shades right they're all indistinguishable you can they don't get to say anything and they don't none of them stand out because their sin has made them all the same you can imagine that logic being applied to all of hell
1: you know mm-hmm.
0: what they would really say what it's hard for me to imagine that, that Dante didn't know that to render human people so precisely and fully and colorfully in this way would, would generate empathy in a reader you know
3: he literally says, were all my prayers answered, you would not be banished from mankind. About Bernardo, right. right. Yeah, it an astonishing line in a very deep pit of hell, right? We're <laughs> not we're, really. we're not like halfway here. Like we're in the seventh circle, the final ring of it. Yeah. Um, It's all, you know, there's not a lot of room for it to be. Much worse. And he, you know, in some ways, I I can't tell though, if he's when he says that he's asking for God's judgment to be overturned, or if he's simply asking for Brunetto's inclusion among the pantheon of men, but still in hell. Like, I wonder if there is this Christian love that can pervade hell, even if it's just that a person in hell be suffering endlessly because in some ways like hell is is not being condemned from mankind right it's it's he's in the he's literally called as part of a troop he's in the company of mankind eternally in hell and it seems to be a pretty you know collection of very interesting elevated people all of whom possess the sin will you say the last part again greg Well, so, so, all right. So Dante says that really shocking line if all my prayers were answered, uh, you would not be banished from mankind. So the obvious question is is Dante asking for God's judgment to be reversed? Um, And on some level, he obviously is, right? And as a pilgrim, that makes sense. It's not, you know, Mm -hmm. literally possible that a pilgrim might at some point wish the opposite of God's wish. Right. But I wonder if there's a harmony to Dante's question, which is that hell is not, the punishment of hell is not banishment from mankind, but banishment from the presence of God. And hell is precisely people, like it's extremely populated. And in that sense, who belongs in it is quite, quite unbanished, and especially as we keep getting these accounts of the noble ones in hell and so i wonder if this is dante expressing a type of love that's compatible with christianity ultimately i'm sure it'll need some revision but some kind of like feeling that's compatible with christianity which fully believes in or values the eternal torture of someone in hell but without
2: or, while wishing it otherwise or something
3: well yeah or even just while holding them in high esteem
2: i'm not going to answer your question greg i'm going to pose another question
3: mm-hmm.
2: i was reading this particular the way our reading shook out right these particular cantos it's interesting the two sins here are two sins that have a, a sort of very or yeah, the other two sins according to dante That have a really special status in today's society. Right. Like, so if we say homosexuality, if we just broaden that and say you could include like transgenderism, homosexuality, you know, queerness generally, all that sort of stuff, that those would all fit under Dante's rubrics of using the body in a way other than it was intended, right? In a sort of strictly Judeo-Christian teleological sense. And then suicide, those are two things that are like considered untouchable not untouchable but like probably two of the things that our society is wrestling with most at this moment right oh, i was gonna suicide. name usury
3: as the as the as i, I the suicide i feel like society doesn't condone but uh-huh. but I it maybe... doesn't
2: you but you don't condemn somebody who's committed suicide
3: really i, I don't feel think like so it's, well yeah maybe i'm
2: you say it's a sickness right right and then, I mean, it's just interesting that these are paired together and, and thinking about like, and I guess you're right about usury. Like these are three things that are like perpetually re- relevant. I think the usury is interesting because it's not difficult to sort of condemn that on a social
3: level. The usury is the backbone of our economy, right? Like m- right. You know, money, but yeah. like anyone, if you open a bank account, you are, you've are you entered into the, the-
2: Or you take out a car note.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you take out a wedding. right
2: a car note you buy a car alone
3: no that's not you usury is the inverse so usury oh. has to be you're giving someone the money and the expectation they pay you back extra because it's yeah, not, that's what I it's not a sin to, oh yeah but yeah, it's yeah. not a sin to receive a loan it's only a sin to grant it
0: that's how that's why the, that's why jews end up being the <laughs> uh, the,
2: uh
3: yeah. financial
0: bankers in so medieval bankers Europe.
3: And, yeah
2: but these but the other two I mean, the other two sort of sexual practice generally, let's say, and and suicide are considered so highly private in some sense that it's very difficult to say anything about them in a public square. Like for me to comment on somebody else's.
3: Right. Well, I think that's, that's just so-
2: interesting. I don't I don't have anything to say. I'm just interesting that those feel like two lightning rods in our moment.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, it seems like a lot of the sins, I guess if you can think about the way that we still we've inherited a christian ethical system and we still more or less abide by what i would consider christian ethics but if you think about the catalog of sins here the ones that when you take away something like yeah like the proper use of the body right that's kind of that's kind of statement that i think would have made moral sense in previous generations but it doesn't is like make any sense to us now you know whereas mm-hmm. don't betray your friends <laughs> like you know like it's very it's a really it's really bad to betray people who've put their trust in you or it's really bad it's um
1: it like it's deforms
0: to murder to you. murder yeah. but even to be excessively greedy you know i think people can agree generally that there's something deforming and self-defeating and and like sad about uh, excessive greed about miserliness you know Even I think the ultimate that's still premised on a kind of Christian ethics, but you know this is not. I guess this is not. I'm not sure. I'm trying to say here, but you see what I mean. These sins seem dependent on a kind of conception of nature, a strong sense of of the concept of nature that we Uh we don't have, whereas many other ones don't seem so dependent on that.
2: Well, and by nature you essentially mean a teleology. Mm -hmm. Um. Anything else we need to say? I mean we didn't exhaust these, but I feel like
1: I have a I have a treat for you all. So I was on vacation this week, so I read one of Kant's pre critical works. Mm-hmm. Uh I finished reading Dreams of a Spirit Seer. So I, I picked it up because it's like what what is Kant talk? He's talking about seeing spirits or people who have seen them and stories that they have he does sort of a case study on the religious figure uh emmanuel swedenborg his work has to do with his visions of the spirit realm right anyway at the very end of kant's you know sort of dismissal uh, like i i can't do anything with this nonsense as a as a serious philosopher i can't treat this seriously you know but the but the the question of the spirit realm and the problems of metaphysics there there's some sort of kinship there so i think that's why kant wanted to treat it in whatever way he could anyway so he's talking about the spirit realm to conclude his piece and gives a a series of rhetorical questions what is it only good to be virtuous because there is another world or is it not rather the case that actions will one day be rewarded because they are good and virtuous in themselves does not the heart of man contain within itself immediate moral prescriptions Is it really necessary in order to induce man to act in accordance with his destiny here on earth to set the machinery moving in another world? Can that person really be called honest? Can he really be called virtuous who would readily abandon himself to his favorite vices were it not for the deterrence of future punishment? Would one not rather have to say that although he fears to practice wickedness he nourishes within his soul a vicious character, that he loves the advantage of actions which present the appearance of virtue while hating virtue itself. And indeed, experience teaches that there are many people who, instructed and convinced of the existence of a future world, nonetheless abandon themselves to vice and baseness, thinking only of the means by which they can cunningly evade the future consequences which threaten them. But there has never existed, I suppose, an upright soul which was capable of supporting the thought that with death everything was at an end and whose noble disposition has not aspired to the hope that there would be a future. For this reason, it seems more consonant with human nature and moral purity to base the expectation of a future world on the sentiments of a nobly constituted soul than, conversely, to base its noble conduct on the hope of another world.
3: He's not a Christian.
1: It's <laughs> just not a Christian. It's the presence so, of God.
3: Kant does not care about that.
1: Is Dante a nobly constituted soul? Is that
3: <laughs> no, it's the, it's the inverse. This whole project is, is oriented around the presence of God. And for uh-huh. Dante, that's an immediately accessible vision, right?
2: Well, well Im- immediately in what sense, Greg? Right? Well,
3: ultimately, immediately. Not, uh-huh. um, maybe I mean, not currently.
2: Yeah, I don't think the, I think Dante is both in some way, because in order to see God, your loves have to be rightly ordered, right? To be virtuous for Dante is to have rightly ordered loves, and the pilgrimage is that which rightly orders your love, and you're not fit for the beatific vision until you're virtuous, which is to say rightly ordered, loved, your loves are rightly ordered. That being said, Greg, you're right, insofar as virtue for Dante is a means to an end, it's not an end in itself.
3: I think yeah, that's, I think not, that's, yeah, not that's certainly least.
2: right. But no. I, think, I think Dante would say part of heaven is a virtuous person is not self-tormented in the way that the hell, the people in hell are.
3: Right. Well, and certainly someone who does. But I think the motive to do virtue can't be good deeds. It's got to be God. Yeah. What's the difference? Saying God is good deeds is a complete annihilation of the uh, of this, of the, like the other world of God, the afterlife. It just makes everything about this here and now, which to me is a, a deeply unchristian idea.
2: Thank you for joining us on the Quixotic Quest for the Key. Next week, we'll be reading Inferno 16, 17, and 18. Good night and fare thee well.
1: Good night. Good night. Yeah. Oh.